0: 15-year-old David faced and defeated Goliath, uh, the monstrous Philistine warrior that no Israeli soldier had the courage to face and instantly became a national hero. But if you know David's story, Goliath was far from the worst enemy that David faced. Defeating Goliath took a few hours. The story is told in 1 Samuel 17. You might want to read it. But uh, 1 Samuel 18 to 28 tells quite a different story. Uh, it's, it's only about 10 pages in your Bible, and you might want to read that too. It's a story of, of Saul's growing jealousy against David, uh, of uh, repeated attempts to kill him, and then something like eight years of David living as an exile and an outlaw as his king, and, uh, and the king's army pursued him all over the country. We too have been uh, facing a prolonged trial. For a year and a half, we've been living uh, the challenges of a global pandemic and, and it's not over yet. It's gone on and on and on and still it continues, especially in other places in the world. But the pandemic was not the first time we encountered protracted challenges and it won't be the last. Maybe your challenges have been things like um, struggles with school or with friends, trying to live with parents who are always seems mad at you Uh, Or trying to understand and relate to your teenager. Or health issues, yours or somebody else's. Financial problems, a marriage that's hurting badly. Bullying, one disappointment after another. It seems like nothing goes right for you. A brutal work situation, uh, a struggling business. Or maybe the challenge really is your own moral failings. Or character flaws that haunt you. Like pride or bitterness or anxiety, fear. Anger, impatience or impurity that, that seems so firmly rooted in your lives, a life that um, it appears impossible that you'll ever be free of them. In one way or another, sooner or later, we find ourselves living with seemingly impossible circumstances, and that's why I've chosen this morning for us to meditate on Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is one of eight Psalms, which, according to their introductory notations, uh, come out of David's experience of being hunted by Saul. The inscription of Psalm 34 reads of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and left. This psalm was formulated in David's mind in the midst of the most traumatic circumstances. As, as Saul is trying to uh, capture David, David actually flees in desperation to Gath, which seems odd to us because it's the former hometown of, of Goliath, uh, the giant that David had killed. That's how desperate David was. And 1 Samuel 21 tells us what happened when he got there. The Philistines, of course, realized that he was the, was the person who had killed their hero, Goliath, that he himself had become a national hero, and they somehow knew that he was going to be the next king of Israel. And so rather than harbor him, they were intent on killing him and they seized him. Uh, 1 Samuel 21 tells us that because of this, David pretended to be insane. And he acted like a madman. He made marks on the, on the doors of the gates and he let saliva run down his beard. And they thought, what, what, what's going on here with this guy? And he was able to escape to the cave of Adullam. Can you imagine how desperate that situation was? Yet out of that extreme trauma, David wrote Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. And here in Psalm 34, he gives us an idea of how to respond when life gets really tough. In fact, we'll notice five things this morning from from Psalm 34. You might have noticed in your Bible, there's a footnote that tells you that Psalm 34 is an acrostic. That is, each of its verses begins with a, uh, a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, except that uh, although the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters and this psalm has 22 verses, David skipped the W and added an extra P. So we'll, we'll, we'll look at that later and figure out why he did that. So what to do when life gets tough? The first thing to do, according to David in Psalm 34, is to praise continually. Verses one to three. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be in my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now, I need to say about Hebrew poetry, it's not about rhyme. Hebrew poetry is about parallelisms. It's about making a statement and then uh, succeeding statements, building on that first statement, uh, either uh, amplifying them or contrasting uh, that statement. So here we have these three couplets. And notice that, fi- that um, David uses five words to amplify the idea of praise. He says, extol, which is to praise the Lord highly. Praise, which is to express admiration for the Lord. Glory, which is to be, take our, our pride is in how great God is. Glorify, which is to praise him extravagantly. And extol, which is to raise him on high. I think the word that has captured my attention the most might be this word glorify. Although when I memorized this years ago, uh, my New American Standard Bible said, Oh magnify the Lord with me. I once heard the well-known uh, Baptist pastor uh, John Piper talk about magnifying the Lord, and he, he talked about the difference between using a, uh, a microscope and using a telescope. He said, "In a microscope, we see tiny things and we make them uh, as though they we make them appear big." And he said, "Unfortunately, we do this in life. We take tiny things, like uh, things of lesser importance, like money." or possessions, or popularity, or position, or recognition, uh, or fame, and we magnify them and make them appear as though they are important. And of course, uh, then uh, we, we worship them, which is idolatry. On the other hand, with a telescope, we take things that are actually huge, that appear tiny, and we can see them and realize that they are actually huge. For example, um, Betelgeuse, Uh, It appears in the night sky as a tiny speck. In a telescope, uh, we can actually see that it is huge. In fact, it is one of the largest stars that you can see with your naked eye. It's the right shoulder of of Orion. It's the right shoulder of of Orion in the constellation. And it's 700 times bigger than the sun. And if you can believe it, 14,000 times greater. When we magnify the Lord, we worship him, we perceive and acknowledge how humongous he is. He is huge. He is the infinite, eternal creator of the entire universe. He is the perfectly loving and absolutely just God of heaven and earth who became one of us in order to rescue us. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Now, what first gripped me, I think, in these three verses uh, in Psalm 34 years ago, and what grips me still, is actually when David praises God. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be in my lips. In other words, when things are going well, when things are not going well, when we're elated, when we're deflated, when we're strong, when we're exhausted, when we're encouraged, when we're discouraged. I will magnify the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my lips. This is an invaluable response to trouble because when we remind ourselves how big God is, our problems tend to shrink to a manageable size. So this is the first thing David is urging us to do in response to life when it gets really, really hard. The second thing is in verses 4 to 7. Cry out urgently. Cry out urgently. <clears throat> I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. You notice verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord. Verse 6, this poor man called, but I love the words of verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them." Somehow this expresses the urgency of the situation. All eight Psalms that David wrote during this period are desperate cries for help. And we can do the same. When your marriage is coming apart, or you are failing at school, or your wife's health, or your husband's health, or someone you love is deteriorating, when there is some situation that is breaking our hearts, we cry out, Lord, help us, rescue us, save us. What can you and I do in desperate situations? We can praise continually, and it's so helpful, but we can also cry out desperately, When life gets hard, we cry out to God. We cry out to Him with all of our hearts. We tell Him exactly how we feel, how afraid we are, how discouraged we are, how grieved we are. You can cry out to Him any time of the day or night. He's always awake and listening. You can cry out to Him with all the desperation that you feel. You're not going to overwhelm Him, He's bigger than your situation. You don't have to worry about confidentiality or smearing somebody else's reputation or saying too much. You don't even have to worry about whether you are somewhat misrepresenting the situation to him in the midst of all your pain. He already knows the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So cry out to him. And in all your crying, know this. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Verse 7. Perhaps you know that when the Old Testament talks about the angel of the Lord, not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord, it is not talking about an angel. It's talking about God himself. I have been so helped again and again to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is the field marshal of all the hosts of heaven. Innumerable angels respond to his command. We catch glimpses of this in the book of Revelation. Not only is God himself with us when we revere him, so is his whole angel army. They are encamped. They are stationed at the ready all around us. It's impossible for us to conceive just how safe we are because this is true. That means that whatever is happening to us isn't isn't by chance, uh, isn't some kind of a fluke. Whatever is happening, God has allowed it to get to us for some good purpose because the angel of the Lord is encamped around about us. And when his purpose is completed, he will deliver us. In 2 Kings 6, there's an astonishing story about the prophet Elisha and his servant. The servant is freaking out because he gets up in the morning and sees that there's an enemy army encircling the the, the town where he and Elisha are staying. And he cries out to Elisha, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? And Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When you and I find ourselves feeling helpless, Besieged by our troubles, remember that you can count on the fact that the angel of the Lord is encamped around you and he will deliver you. Cry out to God urgently, count on him confidently, he will deliver you. Now his deliverance may not be in the way that you thought or would choose, but you can know absolutely that it is what is best for you because he is encamped around you and he loves you more than you can comprehend and he is wiser than you can fathom and he will surely deliver you in a way that is in keeping with his love, wisdom, and infinite power. As we reach verses 8 to 10, David invites us to invite convincingly. He says, taste and see. That the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The goodness of God is a truth of fundamental importance. Ever since the Garden of, uh, garden of Eden, the, the devil, whose name means slanderer, has been lying to humans, insinuating to us that God isn't good and that he can't be trusted. Did God really say, he asked Eve, that you must not eat, that you, uh, must not eat from any tree in the garden? <clears throat> and then he asked, with fake, he asked with fake surprise. And then he says, um, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God isn't good. He's not as good as he pretends to be. He's lying to you. He's trying to cheat you. He's pretending to be for you and he's actually against you. No, David says, the Lord is good. I'm convinced of this. And this isn't just some abstract truth. This is something you can experience. You can taste him, taste and see That the Lord is good. He's saying, I invite you to join me in experience of God's goodness. Take refuge in him. Trust him to provide for you. Because provide for you, he surely will. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weary and hungry. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Of course, the fear that's being spoken of here. The fear of the Lord isn't phobia of him. It's not being frightened of God. It is being in awe of him. And in this context, in awe of his goodness. So whatever our struggles, whether financial or health or family or marriage or school or work or whatever, when life gets tough, it is absolutely essential that we do not lose sight of God's goodness. It's also important that we don't lose sight of each other. Which is why this is extended as an invitation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We need each other. We are stronger together. God made us for community. We need to walk together as we walk with him. Interestingly enough, as we come to the next uh, set of uh, verses, uh, David slips into teaching. And here he talks about living reverently. Live reverently reverently. Verses 11 to 14. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. And of course, that's all of us. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Um, It seems a little strange perhaps that he says, uh, come, my children, Listen to me, is he talking down to people as though they are immature, as though they are naive, that somehow they need to be instructed by him? I don't think so. I think this is a term of endearment. He he loves the people that are with him. And when you love people, when you love your children or your friends or your family, you want them to grasp what you have learned from experience is important. And so he talks about something of supreme importance, living in the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is what we said, it is being in awe of God, but it is knowing that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, therefore he's all around me. He knows everything, he's omniscient, he knows what I'm going through, he knows what I'm thinking, he knows what I'm saying, he, he constantly, he's constantly watching what I am doing. And so, living in the fear of the Lord, living reverently, is living in accord with this reality. And David tells us exactly what to do. He says, watch your mouth, watch your actions, watch your relationships. Watch your mouth. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Be careful not to say things that you're going to regret later. Watch your actions. Turn from evil and do good. Be careful that you only do those things that you're going to be proud of later. And watch your relationships. Seek peace and pursue it. Be a peacemaker. I've learned by watching myself and others that when we face persistent difficulties, we are sorely tempted to give ourselves permission to adopt attitudes and words and actions that we might not normally choose in our saner moments. So we may doubt God, uh, questioning his goodness and his fairness. We may even rage at him, accusing him of making a huge mistake in our situation or of not caring for us. And we may strike out at others, saying, This is all your fault. I can't believe I ever trusted you. When life gets really tough, it seems to me that we are particularly vulnerable to sinful attitudes and words and actions. Instead, David urges us to live in awe of God as the one who is continually, the great God who is continually present with us. But let's be honest living in the fear of the Lord, knowing that I am constantly being evaluated by God, who knows everything, can be more than a little unsettling. And so David goes on to tell us that it doesn't actually have to be. He says, rest securely, verses 15 to 22. And as we read these eight couplets in these last eight verses of, of Psalm 34, notice the contrast between the privileges that the righteous enjoy Uh, knowing and walking with God, as compared to the sad lot, the sad end of evildoers who refuse to walk with God. And as I read these verses, uh, allow them to fuel your desire to know God, because as David says, those who know him can rest securely in him. Verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. <clears throat> These verses became precious to me and when we were church planting in Regina. For about a decade in 1970s and 1980s, Roosevelt and I and our, our young family were planting a church in, in that city. We went there with a carefully laid out plan, complete with the goals to achieve at various stages along the way. But it was excruciatingly hard, even though God provided for us in astonishing ways. I I wish I could tell you about some of those provisions as well as some of the difficulties, but probably need to make a longer story uh, story short this morning. To say that every time another year rolled around that we'd been there, I was reminded how far we hadn't yet come. We had started in the spring, and as each new spring came, I, I became discouraged that we hadn't achieved what we thought we had achieved by that point. And finally, about five years in, I, I found myself in a black hole that sw- had swallowed me up. And I remember thinking that I didn't know where the bottom of that black hole was because it was so far above my head. I didn't know what to do. If my 32-year-old self were now to ask me what to do. I would urge him to rest in the Lord for sure, and I would urge him to, to seek a godly counselor for some help. Back then, I either didn't think of going to a counselor, or I was too embarrassed to, I, but I decided to, to memorize and to meditate on Psalm 34. And so that's what I did. <clears throat> In my New American Standard Bible, which we used in that church at that time, I memorized, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And on and on through the whole psalm. Many times every day, for a long time, I proclaimed aloud those words and the rest of the psalm I meditated on them. I ruminated on them. I recited them. I sang them. I prayed them. I visualized them. And that's when Psalm 18 became precious. Psalm verse 34, 18 became precious to me. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I was brokenhearted, but the Lord was close to me. And he taught me that when he seems farthest away, that's when he's actually the closest. And with that ins- assurance that he was close, I gradually rose to the bottom of the pit <laughs> and continued to rise until I left that black pit behind. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all depression is a spiritual problem. And I, if you just memorize scripture and cry out to God, you'll be cured. But I am saying that God is good. And that he is close to you and to me when we are brokenhearted. And he saves us when we are crushed in spirit. He may use a variety of means for our rescue and for our healing, but he will surely do this very thing. Rest securely. We can rest securely in him. Now, as we come to the end of Psalm 34, there's there's one last indispensable piece to notice. I mentioned earlier that uh, the alphabet, Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters and that this psalm is an acrostic, but that, that David left out the W, <laughs> the vav, and he added an extra P, a P, at the end. So the first P, which comes in the correct order, is verse 16. And, and it's sobering. He says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. B- to blot out their name from the earth... The second P is added uh, at the last, and it's a marked contrast to the first P. Verse 22, the Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. The psalmist wants us to notice this stark contrast. On the one hand, just looking for my handkerchief here. On the one hand, the face of the Lord is against evildoers, blotting out their name. No matter how famous they are, they'll eventually be completely forgotten. On the other hand, the Lord rescues his servants who take refuge in him from ever being condemned. Now, the evil here are those who resist God and his servants. The righteous are those who fear God in the sense of living in awe of him. Now, if we're honest, we all have a problem Every one of us, no matter how good we seek to be, has an element of the evildoer in us. We all resist God. We all too often make tough decisions make life tough for other people. So how can we be sure that we can rest securely in a relationship with God now and forever? The answer is actually in the second P. We need God's rescue. We need His. Redemption. In fact, a more literal translation of verse 22 goes like this The Lord redeems the soul of his servant. The Lord redeems the soul of his servant. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. How does the Lord redeem the soul of his servant? Well, actually, the answer is found in the rest of the story. When we read on and on through God's precious word, we come to the New Testament. We come to Jesus, God becoming one of us in order to be the Messiah and to rescue us. And finally, we come to the crucifixion. And in John 19, we learn that Pilate had ordered that the legs of Jesus and the thieves crucified with him should be broken before they were removed from the cross. And then we read that Jesus' executioners did not break his legs. And John comments that this is in fulfillment of Psalm 34 written a thousand years earlier which says the righteous person may have many troubles but the Lord delivers him from them all he protects all his bones not one of them will be broken Jesus is the ultimate righteous one who experiences experienced many troubles he experienced the ultimate trouble of taking our sins upon himself paying the penalty that our sins deserve And the Lord rescued him out of them all. Not one of his bones was broken. And he was raised from the dead triumphant. And today offers himself to us as a living savior. And so in the context of this psalm, we realize that there is actually a supremely important reason why every one of us should be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. Every last one of us, should be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit when we realize how far short we fall of the righteousness of God. We realize how sinful we actually are. We all have evil in us. And the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. Apart from Jesus who came as God to be our Savior, we are in deep trouble now and forever. When this life gets hard, we don't have his help and at death we'll be shut out of his presence forever unless he intervenes. And that means that the most important preparation we can ever make to be ready for this life and the next is to rest securely in Jesus as our rescuer, our redeemer, our living savior who died and rose again for us. If this is not currently true for you, I invite you even this morning to taste and see that the Lord is good. He loves you regardless of who you are or what you've done. He took your sins upon himself when he died for all of us. Admit your need of him. Ask him to forgive your sins. Repent of your sins. Surrender to him as the Lord of your life. Take refuge in him. Do not delay. Do this delay today, the bottom line of this, this psalm is this. With God as our refuge, we are equipped to respond when life gets tough. With God as our refuge, we are equipped to respond when life gets tough. And so from that vantage point, we can praise continually no matter what's happening. We can cry urgently even when life gets tough. We can invite others to walk with us in the fear of the Lord. We can live reverently in awe of God who is continually present with us. And we can rest securely in our relationship with him. Let's, I invite you all, I invite us all to pray together and express these things to God. Lord God, we admit that we fall far short of your goodness. We all have evil in us. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our sins upon yourself when you died in our place. We repent of our sins. And we declare, perhaps for the first time, or we declare again that we are trusting in you as our Redeemer, our Savior. And we ask you to help us to live in reverent awe of you. Regardless of whether life is easy or hard, we choose to praise you continually To cry out to you urgently when we are in need. To walk with others as we walk with you. And to rest securely because we know that you are good and you are near. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.